Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi guys, welcome to Mist Apex iRacing, part of the Mist Apex Motorsport Podcast Network. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. We're the podcast for the everyday iRacer, looking at iRacing from a hobbyist point of view, making you wiser, happier and faster. I bring you experts each week and occasionally a panel of my iRacing and podcast friends to talk about the sim racing that we all love today. I am joined by Brad Philpot. How's it going, Brad? It's going really well. Thanks for having me back. And you're you're doing this from your actual racing pod this time, so you seem more racy. Yeah, so I've moved the um, the microphone over to the sim rig itself so that I can have better audio with my live stream when I'm racing in a couple of big races in the next two weeks. So how do you find streaming while you're racing? And a lot of people find it distracting even just to have the Discord chat on. And for the last round of Missed Apex podcast, we were down one commentator, uh, Catman was not available. So I did the secondary commentating kind of Martin Brundle role whilst I was driving. and <laughs> I just had that hooked up and they used my my VR audio. How distracting do you find it streaming and talking and answering questions? Um, it is reasonably distracting, which is why I won't be interacting with any kind of live chat during the important races. Um, but I'll still have a chat going that I can respond to once I've got out of the car at pit stops and that kind of thing, or, or in between races if it's not an endurance race. So, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have my, my standard YouTube comments coming up on the, in the VR for me to read and, and answer. But in the more casual races, yeah. I, I don't mind that at all. It's not too distracting. So you have an actual, like an overlay in your virtual reality where you can choose what? You can choose just to have your computer screen up, the live chat, all sorts of things. You can choose various things. Um, so yeah, I've got overlays that show me the positions of, of other cars and relative and that kind of thing, similar to your your iRacing black boxes. Uh, but I also, during live streams, as I say, I've got the YouTube chat, which is basically um, kind of projected into my VR and you can position <laughs> it at any angle you want, a bit like having a TV screen up in front of you. You can, you can change the position, the angle, the size, that kind of thing. So it's quite cool to have. I have tried that and I can never get it in a place where it's not distracting. So where do you physically have it on your on your screen in front of you? Because I, if I have it over to the right, I tend to find that I'm, it's like having a mobile phone while, you, while you're driving and I get distracted moving over to the side. I put it up in the air. So um, anyone watching my live streams will, will maybe sometimes notice me just kind of looking at the sky on the straights. And that's because it's kind of off to the right, up in the air, but angled down towards me. So I can glance up, read a couple of comments and then and then respond to them as I'm driving. So I've uh, done a couple of test streams as well. And I did notice in VR, you have to be really careful with keeping your head relatively still. Um, I did one I did one stream that is available on my Richard Rennie Ready YouTube channel of my boy doing some Lucas oil trucks. And that thing is going everywhere. Like you feel sick watching it. So I might have to take that down or put a warning there. Yeah, I've not had too much problem with that, but I also haven't done any trucks off road. So I'll, I'll think about that if I do that. No, because you're a very serious, super-duper racer man. Uh, you describe yourself, I think, as a Nordschleifer specialist. You are a VLN a class champion. Is it one t- title or two? 
Two two titles, ah, twenty eighteen and go. nineteen. Okay, and uh, that the name of that series has changed. So it was VL VLN. So VLN is now LNS, but you're doing a sim version of it, which is why it's relevant. I'm not just bragging that I know a real life Nordschleifer driver guy. Um, so they're doing a digital version um, this weekend, and that's being taken quite seriously. Yes. So I don't normally, I'm not normally invited into these, but yes, it's the, the DNLS, the digital Nürburgring Langstrecken series. And it's run by the same people who run the real life version. Um, it's basically run by Nürburgring, the company. Um, and they take it just as seriously as the real thing. There's extremely detailed rules. Everything's all posted on the official website, same as if it was a, a real race. Um, it's covered by the same broadcasters that would cover the normal race. Um, and I think they even produce the video content in the same TV studio that they do that kind of thing. And you've got lots of real world teams. And as well as that, you have to field a real life Nürburgring driver as your ah, first driver in the race. So right. that's why I've been invited along because uh, their normal driver, who's Mauro Engel, who's a Formula E driver and Mercedes GT3 driver. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he, he was uh, out, I think he's out in Dubai doing a race or maybe Bahrain. And so he's unable to race so i'm racing for the mercedes team um in his place so that's what class is that in because there's several different classes in um l n s so does it translate does your real life class translate over kind of yeah so this is the gt3 class which in nurburgring terms is called sp9 just to be confusing um and that's actually the class above the one that i'll be racing in real life so it's always quite good to practice on the simulator anyway in something a bit quicker than the thing you're racing in real life Okay, well, um, like we did last week, we're going to do a, a topic that I'm going to fire at you. And uh, we're also going to take a listener question as well. So we're going to be talking braking and a little bit of setups. Um, but how do you think you're going to do in this digital thing? It, it's it's airing on Saturday, is it, or is Saturday a practice? No, that's the real life coverage, isn't it, on Saturday? Yes, yeah, it's airing Saturday lunchtime. And I'm, I don't know how we're going to do that. I can't divulge too much because... The team have actually sworn me to secrecy on a number of things. <laughs> that competitive. They've worked so hard on their setup. They don't really want to let anyone know exactly what they've done or, or where they think they're going to be in the pecking order. They were around about 10th place at the last race, but they're really convinced they've made a big leap forward, which is crazy that in a, in a, you know, a series where everyone's effectively using the same kind of equipment or I know there's various cars, but they're all working within the same parameters there's still teams virtually working on setup, which is so detailed that, they, that they're trying to get a leg up on their competitors. So anyway, I'm hoping we're going to be somewhere near the front. It largely depends on how well my professional sim driver teammate qualifies us. And uh, is, since you're a real world driver, you're almost, because what's, what's the other series you were racing in that was a mix of sim drivers and, and real drivers? That's the VCO Pro Sim. Right. And yes, the next round of that's next week as well. Yeah. So you were driving in that and the likes of like Grosjean and Verstappen are in that as well. And to hear the commentators talking then, they were talking about you guys, the real world racers, as kind of like a liability. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, they've got to get a bit of a gap so that the real world drivers can get in and not lose too much. Uh, is it is it a boom, a boost for your team that you're doing this DLNS with at the weekend that at least you are like a rated sim driver as well with a decent i rating yes i think that's actually exactly why they've got me on board because not only is the nurburgring my thing but um also i actually think think i've got a higher i rating than all the pro sim drivers in the team so that doesn't mean i'm better than them it, uh, sim driving it just means that i've worked hard to build that up but it's at least a decent measure that you're going to be pretty good in the sim and and on current form i'm not very far off the pro sim guys despite it being a, over an eight minute lap so i'm quite happy 
anyway, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I've just added iRating to my wish list of topics to talk about because uh, I know in your position, you have to kind of guard your iRating. You can't throw it away. But we'll get into that more. In my position, I don't really mind. We've moved to F3 and my iRating is tanked because I just keep getting an incident. And it's like, well, it's put me down the lower splits and I can kind of enjoy them. Obviously, you've got a very different approach. Um, so the first topic I want to talk about is uh, breaking today. I want to have a little bit of a, a focus on breaking. And I'm sure from that, it will branch into a million different topics because uh, breaking is a vast subject. But I think we'll scale this at someone like me. And yes, I'm just using this podcast as an excuse to just get advice from you. Uh, someone who can generally pick a breaking point, be reasonably consistent uh, and then drive out of a corner. That's what we're going to try and improve. So like, firstly, from a sim point of view, we've talked about breaking loads uh, on Missed Apex podcast. But from a sim point of view, the, the hardware you use itself can be quite varied. So I think start with the difference between the normal kind of set you'll get with like a G29, which is you have to press it down a bit. It's not particularly stiff. And then you can also choose uh, up to like what I've got now, which is a CSL Elite Load Pedal. So do you want to briefly summarize the difference between those two types? Yes. So as you've alluded to, Spanners, this is quite a, a wide-ranging topic and, and there's a lot of detail to go into. So on this specific area you've you've just highlighted, the different kinds of brakes that you can get um, yeah. with a, a simulator. The first thing people generally tend to find when they when they buy their their simulator kit and they, they're kind of starting out is they'll they'll start to understand that the brake pedal probably feels a bit too squishy. It feels a bit softer than than their road car even um, and it's very easy to actually push the pedal all the way down to the floor sometimes just as easy as pressing the accelerator down depending what pedal which pedal set yep. you get and and those tend to be the kind of uh, brakes that are made with a potentiometer so there's basically a sensor in there that you're pushing your foot down and that's rotating a little sensor which is then telling the sim how much brake force or how much braking to apply in the game itself um, there's other types of pedals which uh, tend to be the higher end, more expensive pedals, like the ones you've got. You've got a very, very good set there, uh, which use something called a load cell, which measures what you're doing with your foot in a different way. Instead of measuring how far you've moved the pedal, mm. it measures how much force you're pushing the pedal with. Um, so effectively, the pedal could be a rock solid um, piece of equipment that doesn't move. But if you're pressing it firmly, then that will register an input in the sim um, and that's how the that's how iRacing is deciding how much braking you're doing. And yeah. there's there's reasons why the higher end versions use this load cell as opposed to the potentiometer. Um, and I'm going to try and make it as as simple as possible. So I'm sure there are people who would, who could say that they've won world championship races, you know, with potentiometer pedals. I'm yeah. sure that, that definitely used to happen in the past. But yeah, there is a reason why. As people get better and they invest more heavily in their sim setup, they tend to move towards the the load cell version. And so you haven't wasted your money. Okay, uh, good. It absolutely is better. It doesn't mean you'd be faster immediately, especially if you're used to something which feels mm. different. Um, but I would say certainly someone coming from real world driving, then moving across to a sim, they would immediately find the load cell easier right. to get grips with because it much more closely reflects how the braking works in a real race car. Yeah. So the question would be, what am I missing out on with the potentiometer one, which is just loose? I mean, you're, you're, physically, you're just physically moving a pedal, which moves a contact patch along a set of coils. So the, the more of the coil you've got, the less signal you've got because you've got more resistance because you're further along the coil. So it is just a physical 
electronic electrical switch and it it can just give way as you put your foot down what am i losing by having that instead of a load cell so very briefly i just have to explain that people are better at judging how hard they're pressing something rather than how far they're moving it so as a general rule humans are just better at reproducing a certain amount of force with a limb and in this in this case with your foot and your leg than they are at how far they've moved it if you ask them to try and reproduce the same thing and what that basically means in a, for racing and for sim racing is that if you can get quite a firm pedal if you can make it so that your brake pedal doesn't move very far it's quite stiff you'll tend to be a bit more accurate once you're used to it you'll be able to be faster on track because you're braking better you're not locking up unnecessarily and you're judging it correctly more often than not Apart from, so you've got this physical reality that people are just better when when pressing something which is firmer. With a potentiometer brake, you can make your pedal very firm. You can put rubber blocks behind it. There's plenty of mods you can do. If, if it doesn't have a, an automatic way of doing it with the set you've got, you could give a stiffer spring. But the problem with that is you're actually then limiting the travel of the pedal. And we've already mentioned that the way it's measuring how much braking you're doing is by essentially... Um, measuring how much you've pushed it, how far it's gone. Um, and so if you're limiting the movement, if you're making the pedal stiff, you're giving yourself quite a small resolution of braking. It means um, it, for the same kind of small movements that your foot are do- foot's doing, it's not going to be a very accurate braking because you've just kind of, z- you've really made that range of braking inputs much, much smaller, which doesn't happen with a load cell. The pedal doesn't right. need to move in the slightest. You can have it as firm as you want. Um, and some people don't make it you know, like a complete block of wood, but you can do everything up to that, make it absolutely as firm as you want. And it will still measure the full range, the full resolution of your braking inputs because it's measuring how hard you're pressing it. So at the moment I have them set with the stiffest possible settings, these load cells. So I can hit it as hard as I want and I'm very unlikely to lock, especially initially. I might lock if I hold on to it too long, like into an apex, but you know, I, I like to be able to just completely lean on it. Is that is that the right way to go, or, or is there a risk? I guess that I'm missing out on the maximum braking because I'm, I'm making myself having to have to press it too hard. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So generally, I would want to calibrate the pedals to a point where you can still lock them up, but you have to put in pretty much your maximum braking effort in order to do that. Um, and so when you calibrate the pedals in iRacing, it's quite a simple thing to do. Um, you just when it comes onto the brake calibration, you just press the pedal as hard as you think you're going to press it as a, as a maximum in a race uh, on track. And that then means that, as you say, you're not going to be locking up willy-nilly because you know you've got to put in your maximum force to achieve that. But it also means that you can get close to that maximum more easily and have this kind of threshold braking where you're nearly locking up, but not quite. And it's much easier to bring it back from the brink of locking rather than going way past it with this squishy pedal um, and then having to come completely back off the brakes again. You can hold it on the limit that much more easily. And when uh, when we first started karting together, you know, you were saying to me, oh, you actually want to get the point to the point of locking up. It really surprised me that you wanted to get that far. Like I thought of locking up as, oh, it's terrible. You watch F1 and you say, you see, oh, he, Grosjean's locked up into turn one. Oh, no, he's flat. it's terrible. He's flat spotted it. So I thought of like locking up as this thing that like, oh man, if you've locked up, like you're an idiot and you've gone too far. But as soon as with the karting, I I went, oh no, you need to get all the way up to that point of locking up. Um, Otherwise you're not getting the maximum out of the, out of the, 
the braking performance. And that was actually quite a hard concept to get my head around. So why do we need to get so close to that, the the point of locking where basically the brakes are so tightly applied that the wheels no longer turn on the ground? That's locking, isn't it? So like, why do we, why is that point so important? So you you don't actually want to be locking up all the time, but you want to be on the point where you are nearly, very, very nearly locking up, you know, a fraction of a percent away from actually locking up. And if you occasionally go marginally over that and have a brief lock, as long as you don't stay locked up, as long as you, you know, you bleed the pressure back off the brakes immediately, then that's fine. And as you said in the karting, what you certainly don't want to do is you brake too gently and and not be anywhere near locking up. And the reason is you want to get the maximum possible braking performance because that means you can brake as late as possible if you're if you're closer to the point of locking up that means you can brake later than someone who isn't as close to the point of locking up because the car slows down faster it's as simple as that and it, it's um a counterintuitive thing to get used to um, at my kind of level um and my and my son's kind of level is that when you get to that point of locking up if you go too far you will actually stop quicker by lifting off and getting the wheels moving again and that's a hard concept to get your head around and this is quite similar to our topic last week with understeer, where most people's natural reaction yeah. to, to the front not doing what they tell it to do, if it stops steering as much as you want, is to apply more steering lock because you think the car isn't turning enough, I should turn more. In a similar way, a lot of people feel a lock up and they think the car isn't slowing down enough, I need to brake harder. And the thing in both of those situations that you have to realise is the reason it's not doing the thing you want it to do is because you've done too much of the thing and you need to then bring it back yeah. to the point where the vehicle can actually respond. First time I, I did karting in the rain, I I guess because when the surface is wet, that point at which the braking force overcomes the grip on the, the surface of the road is that much, uh, you know, you, you need less braking force to make it lock. And I was doing that. I was like, I was starting to lock. I was going, oh, no, I, I can't stop. And then I would just be pinning the brake more which just makes you a passenger and just spins you you know spin and that was at buckmore that was a very miserable miserable day and i was the only car on track and they were watching and they told me how pathetic it was when i came off track so thanks buckmore but no i'm just, they did it in a nice way uh but yeah so getting off that and finding that point we're establishing is important and I, i'm still not quite getting my head around exactly why a load cell would help me be on that point more because- because we're able to have a firmer pedal whilst still maintaining maximum resolution of braking inputs. And that means you're not going way past the point, the correct amount of braking too easily. Um, and then having to come back because the pedal's right. not moving as far and you're able to more accurately judge how much braking you're doing. Um, it basically just makes it easier to hold it on that point. If you were to try and anything that moves too easily, it's a bit like if you turn off your force feedback. If you turn off the force feedback steering, but you've still got the, the sensor turned on so you can still actually steer the car around the track, it's so hard to find the correct amount of steering lock. You'll go past the correct amount. You'll turn too much and then you'll correct too much. And it's exactly the same thing with the pedal there, although you're not getting a, a kind of a, a, um, active force feedback through the pedal. Just the fact that it is stiffer means it's easier to find that correct amount and do that consistently rather than go way past it back off, back on, and be locking up all the time. If you were to take the sp- or put a very soft spring in any brake, um, that's the problem you would have. And obviously, as we, as we mentioned earlier, having this load cell rather, a pe- rather than a potentiometer allows you to have this very, very little movement in the pedal because the movement doesn't matter and still yeah. achieve the, the full range of braking from 0% to 100% and everything in between without having to have big steps in between each one of those percent 
percentage. Yeah, I want to give you. I want to uh, bug you about some sp- specific breaking techniques uh, into a couple of various corners. We are actually just doing a test stream as well, so we've got a live chat room that I've put with the into the uh, Missed Apex podcast iRacing community on Slack. Um, and we've got a comment. We've got a question in there, and it's a very good one as well. Uh, but before we move off the types of pedal, obviously load cells come at a an increased cost. Uh, before getting that load cell set, um, I had a set from our friend Danny, who it was a, a normal potentiometer set, but he, they had kind of put a modification behind it, like a load cell modification behind it, so that you ended up pressing that. Um, it didn't... I, it never felt quite comfortable with that because the the back of it was flexible metal, so you were kind of it was giving way a little bit. Um, but if you're not in the market for a a load cell set, and we've got our normal potentiometer pedals, I take it we're still saying if you can find some kind of rubber stopper attachment that makes it stiffer, we still want that that bit of resistance that will still help. It generally helps. It's what I used to do for sure. Um, so, for example, the, the Thrustmaster pedals I used to have, T3 PA Pros, there was oh, a, yeah. a an official modification that had like a rubber cone that you could kind of screw into the pedal. So they obviously they realised that having this extra firmness kind of acted as a bit of a damper uh, and made it easier to brake more accurately. The problem being, the rubber things wear out, and I went through loads of them, um, right. and you're still limiting the range of travel of the pedal. And ultimately, if you want that total firmness if you want the, the maximum possible you know take it to an extreme and you don't want the pedal to move at all my current ones actually only move maybe two or three mil maximum uh, the way i've got them set if you want that you're going to have extremely um, inaccurate braking because the pedal just isn't moving and if it's got a potentiometer and it's measuring movement and you're not allowing it to move you're not going to have a very a very smooth um accurate right. braking level in the game that's all so, so if you if you have potentiometer pedals make them a bit stiffer but not so much that they reduce resolution yeah there they have go. to still be able yeah. to move so so you have to basically make a bit of a compromise there I, I know how to make those rubber things stop wearing out though brad if you just get married and have a couple of kids your sim nothing on your sim rig will wear out because you won't have enough time okay so let's let's get into a bit of braking technique then um the the comment came in from connor who races with us in the missed apex swarm hello connor uh he says it's um counterintuitive as well in the f3 that you can break less uh, as it slows i'm assuming he means deliberately break less like trail braking so we'll get into trail braking i think that's kind of a bit second stage i i want to nail that hard braking zone into like just a normal corner. There's nothing super fancy going on. Um, let's say it's the the big hairpin at the Nurburgring. So you know the one that it, you know you go downhill and then you go 180 degrees and then you go back uphill and sweep left flat out. So we're approaching that hairpin and I want to take a, a just a bunch of speed off because it's a hairpin. I remember you saying to me once over my shoulder in a sim, do all the braking first, like get on there as hard as possible immediately did have i remembered that right so as i hit my breaking point i want as much braking as i can without locking immediately yes and i actually think what connor was alluding to there is the fact that the f3 car has a lot of downforce so you can break really hard the faster you're going as the speed is bleeding away as you are slowing the car down the downforce is reducing so the amount of pressure you can apply to the brakes has to also reduce if you try to maintain (laughs) that maximum braking all the way through the braking zone 
as the downforce bled away, you then end up locking up the closer you got to the corner. Even though you hadn't increased the pressure, the down you've got less downforce, so the tire can lock more easily. So I think so that's that, probably what you're pointing to. That point of locking that we were talking about isn't just a consistent amount of pressure, isn't a consistent place on the potentiometer. It's changing as we're braking. Okay, well, this got in complicated. A, in a car with downforce in particular, yeah, in the Formula 3 cars, it's a moving yeah. target. The, the maximum braking force you can get away with without locking which is the the point you're trying to achieve all the way through the braking zone um that isn't the same all the way through the braking zone because the downforce is changing so i want to test that then so the next i'm going to get into that braking zone and you can see the red braking bar can't you in iRacing so i'm going to get it to a place and try and hold it consistently as i get as i slow down and see if i can get them to lock up with the same brake pressure that would be quite interesting yes and then uh, yeah yeah, and I, and I guess, I mean, you probably do it instinctively, but you need to experiment with that in your practice sessions to then go, oh, okay, at each phase in the break. See, I'm just thinking of this as one breaking point, break, and then go again. But really, I need to be thinking about that pressure all the way through the braking zone. God, this is homework. Yes, and, and it gets slightly more complicated than that as well. So your braking trace will be kind of tailing off because you're also, not only are you chasing this... Uh, downforce which is bleeding away and trying to to kind of match your braking effort to that once you start turning into the corner and more often than not you will trail the brakes slightly or quite a lot depending on the corner type um you're also then removing load from that inside front wheel so that's another thing you have to take into account so it's not just that there's less downforce as you're slowing the car down you've also got less weight on that inside front tire so the unloaded tire could also lock more easily which is why you do maximum brake even in a car with no downforce you'd still have a similar looking brake trace where you do most of it whilst the car is straight and loaded up with all the weight over the nose and then as you start to turn into the corner and the weight transfers to the opposite side of the car to the outside you then bleed off the brakes to try and compensate for that so you don't end up snatching that inside front wheel it's quite a lot to digest and unpack there Um, but that's that's my homework for when we get off this podcast then is to be modulating and and bleeding off the brakes so at the braking zone full on get it to the point of locking and then and then i keep need to keep looking for that locking point uh, and that that's going to dramatically change my my braking zone so i'm going around barcelona at the moment in the f3 once i start doing that successfully do i find that i'm then braking later is that the aim i can then brake later because i'm doing more efficient braking all the way through yeah, you're maximizing what you can get away with. So yeah, that means you naturally can then brake later. It's one of the first things that as a, a young single-seater driver that you're kind of trained to do is brake really hard and then start to bleed off. And you have to you have to effectively mm. visualize what's happening with the airflow over the car in a similar way to when you're racing someone and with no car in front of you, you might be able to enter a corner at a certain speed. But when you've got a car just in front of you or if a car moves across in front of you in a downforce uh, car like the F3s, you have to kind of visualize that gap in the downforce where that car is creating dirty air and has already punched a hole in the air in front of you. You have to kind of mentally map that. And oh. it's a similar thing with the brakes. You have to, you have to mentally map how much airflow is, is traveling over the wings and what I can therefore get away with. You want to really, I've mentioned the word visualize a couple of times. You want to really think about the shape of your braking trace as in the way you're pressing the pedal, the shape that you're pressing the pedal should be immediately 100%, this is for a heavy braking zone, obviously, you don't brake 100% everywhere, but say into this hairpin at the Nürburgring you're talking about, immediately 100%, and after a very short period of time, that then trails off smoothly. 
So yeah, you don't want it to kind of, you don't want the brakes to be rounded on either side. You want the initial brake to be very hard, then a smooth curve off. Um, if you were to do it the other way where you kind of bleed on the brakes and you find where the like in a road is, car yeah <laughs> yeah like in a road car you've wasted that initial extra downforce and extra load you had pressing you down into the track at the beginning of the braking phase and then you'll will you will lock up more easily so right there's definitely more braking stuff i want to talk about than we're going to fit in here and also get danny's question too uh so what i will do is i'll end the braking by asking you about where the braking fully ends so we've talked a little bit about going into the corner but it was a little bit too much for me to take all in one go so how how does my braking change now i think it's worth reiterating you did say it a bit but i've i've bled it off to the point where the corner has now arrived the instinct in a car when you're learning to drive your road car is you really should have finished removing all your speed by the time you start turning and then you're in the maximum amount of control. Well, we don't want to be in the maximum amount of control. So what's my tip for, like, with that hairpin, do I, do I need to be braking all the way to the, to the acceleration zone? Do I want to be diving down into the apex, still on the brakes, tyres smoking? Like, what's the kind of go-to way to visualise when I should start being off the brakes? So there's not one hard and fast rule for Aww. every corner type. But there is certainly a general rule, and and that is you want to be slowing down as late as possible in, in every you know every braking zone. You're trying to you're trying to scrub the speed off as late as you can get away with. So you're going as fast as possible for as long as possible. And if that means you can extend the braking zone into the corner itself, then that's great. Nah, Depending yeah. on how tight the corner is, um, that will kind of dictate how much you can do that because eventually you are going to lock a wheel if you're having to apply lots of steering lock you really can't get away with braking quite hard as you're you know, extending the braking zone into the corner. So the one in our example here, the, the hairpin at the Nürburgring, there will be some brake trailing. Your, your end of your braking phase should cross over into the turning part, but because it's such a tight corner, you'll very quickly find you have to get off the brakes and then start to squeeze the power again. But you want to try and make those two events, the finishing of the braking zone and the beginning of the acceleration zone, quite close together if you can help it. You don't want too much dead time where the car is just coasting in the middle because that probably means you've left some time on the table either in getting on the power earlier or in carrying on the braking later. So if you are ever noticing that there's a kind of big waiting period where you're fully off the throttle and you're mm. fully off the brakes, just, mm. just try extending that braking zone a little bit deeper, i.e. brake a fraction later and carry those brakes into the corner a bit more trying not to lock um, right it's, it's tricky this is this is where racing and, and doing fast laps starts to become um really a lot down to practice because this is not something you can really be thinking about consciously too much this needs to okay this needs to be ingrained to do it properly but you have to make the decision to break so late that if you don't trail break you're going to miss the apex you know you have to you have to commit to that uh, so i'm not expecting you to know how each car handles on each specific corner that I'm talking about. Uh, but I think it's turn 10 in Barcelona, very tight left-hand hairpin. So you, you sweep over the right nearly flat, and then you bomb down towards, you're hitting your brakes somewhere before the 100-meter marker board. Very tight. And so very kind of tight backwards on yourself. And I did find today that when I was able to stay on the brakes right into the apex, it was half a second. You know, I was suddenly found half a second from before where I was taking the speed off and trying to kind of carry speed through, if that makes sense. So there's always that that pick at my level. I'm sure it's instinctive for you 
where you go, do I get the braking done early and then start accelerating out of the corner or do I die for the the apex and trail break like we spoke about? Um, so I can easily suddenly go, oh, oh man, that was half a second. I, I, I picked the wrong one initially. Yeah, that's another similar kind of corner in the opposite direction, tight hairpin. Um, and you'll, you'll generally find on a corner like that, your technique you just mentioned is probably yeah. the best. There should be very little time where you're just coasting through the corner. Um, but, but you're right. There's a lot of time in this and mm. it's because it allows you to carry speed for longer, be more accurate at the apex, you know, be on the correct line, um, get the rotation done correctly because you've still got weight on, on the nose. Um, so anyway, there's quite a few benefits to getting this right, which is why having equipment, which allows you to do it right, definitely helps yeah. as with your new pedals um, and practicing it a lot will also help a lot. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's see if I can nail down the difference I felt with the load cells specifically for this 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 trail braking. I think I'm using the terminology right with trail braking. So with the potentiometer with trail braking, I felt like I was having to judge how little braking I should put on. So like, oh, I still need a little bit. So just ease off the braking. With the load cell, I still feel like I'm braking hard even when I'm trail braking because I'm still braking hard towards the locking point, if that makes sense. So although I'm braking less, I still feel like I'm braking hard and firmly all the way through the big braking and then into the trail braking phase. And I think that's the biggest advantage of the load cell is you're not having to guess. You can feel that bite point all the way around. Yeah, the range of input that you're able to give the simulator is just bigger because if you're, say, with your your potentiometer pedal, it might have taken five kilograms of of um, force to, to actually get to hundred percent braking. And at the moment you might have to apply say 15 kilograms to get to maximum. You've got so much more range there to play with. And so, you know, you can still be braking at say 10 kilograms, um, force, and you can be much more smooth in your modulation. And you've got a lot more to play with in between that and zero braking. Um, and I, I really think that's probably what you're, you're, you're feeling now with the new pedals. All right, let's abandon the listener question so I can go and practice that. No, 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 no. Right, let's get a question for the last five minutes here, Brad. And um, this is going to set us up down a path because it's about it's about setup. 
And obviously there's about 45 million setup related topics. Uh, and I, I don't know where you class yourself in expertise for setup, but I've got absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I completely rely. I'm a scrounger. I am a setup scrounger. I'm always like, hey, Matt, uh, what setup are you using there? You fancy, uh, you know, I'm like the kid who didn't do their homework and wants to copy. Uh, but Danny asks, how much does setup affect pace? And it's a simple question. I mean, there's a range of setups for 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 each car. And iRacing have started supplying setups for each car track combination. And you can go and purchase setups from a service that provides um, provides setups for each track. Well, how much am I leaving on the table if I don't pick the right setup? Is, so, that, is that a fair question? Yeah, it is a yeah. fair question. And Danny's question has quite a simple answer uh, on the face of it. How much do <laughs> setups affect pace? Massively is the answer. Yeah. It's once you're... Once you're at your own personal limit and you can't drive any faster uh, or, or at the limit of the baseline setup, then all the rest of the pace is going to come from an improved setup. And just from my point of view, I, I do subscribe to a, a setup service because I, I'm i not an engineer. I don't derive my enjoyment in yeah. racing, real world and virtual, from building the vehicle, adjusting the vehicle. That isn't where, I've, where I have fun. I have fun of racing and racing at the front if possible and and being able to focus on that in the real world unless you're running your you know your own car in a club race or something like that where setup's pretty limited anyway you don't tend to get too involved and i am a similar way apart from some minor preference things i generally know what most of the certainly the basic setup changes will do if i want a little bit more turn in i know what to do um mm. if, if i can very easily change gear ratios all that kind of thing um but really in order to get the i find off i'll have more pace by knowing that the setup is as good as possible and then blanking that out of my mind and just concentrating on the driving so uh, i um i certainly don't spend hours fiddling around with it so i think with you we can do we can do a setup conversation where i can say to you okay if x is happening what generally is the function of the car that will make it um, yeah. make will improve that but what we won't do with you is say, you know, what's the correct setup for Barcelona in F3, etc. But we might we might find ourselves a, a setup expert for that. Um, but you could answer this general question for me. Often when I'm scrounging setups from people, we'll get someone who'll say, right, well, this is this one is uh, stable. This one's in control. And generally, yes, we, we do tend to, to talk about single seaters and um, road road racing. Or someone will say, this setup is fast, but it's trying to kill you. And so at the moment, I've got a, a pick between a very stable setup. I can feel a bit of understeer, but I don't mind a bit of understeer for whatever reason. And I've got one as well from, from friends, which the, the, the rear is loose, but I can see that I'm getting like faster sector times. My optimal is faster. I can't string it together because I can't keep it on track. Uh, why does generally a fast setup feel harder to drive? And, and generally uh, easier to drive one is slower. Why isn't there just a magic middle? Why can't it be, be all things? It's a shame there isn't a magic middle. It's quite rare to find that. But it, it's because generally if a, if a setup feels safe, if it feels like you've got loads of grip, then you probably could get away with less wing or, or a car which turns in better, provided you can cope with the small moments of oversteer, for example, that that might generate. What you don't want is a car that, 
has a completely planted rear end, as an example, but that yeah. means you're really slow on the straights. Um, so right. downforce is one of the big things, certainly when we're talking about the single-seaters, the Formula 3s or the Formula Renaults. Um, it's quite easy to make a setup which feels very safe and you can do consistent laps and, and get around the track, never being in danger of spinning. But it just means you're giving away time in other areas. Um, you know, you're just not close enough to the edge of performance, which is probably a really good thing for a complete rookie because you need to, and I'm not saying this is you, this is for someone who is. Um, no, that's fine. Someone who needs that practice of just not going off the track all the time and they're going to get a better result if they just finish the race. But yeah. once someone is a better driver and they're, more than happy to cope with understeer, oversteer, every sort of handling imbalance on the limit uh, instinctively, then obviously you want to make that setup just as fast as it can go. A fast setup doesn't have to feel tricky, but sometimes they do. Sometimes the fastest setup is one which is on edge, particularly if you can gain a lot of time on a, on a particular circuit by lowering the wing level. Right. I think I need to move away from from that that kind of safe setup because for me with the limited time i have uh because i chose to spawn i know it's my fault i have two terrible children and a wife and all all conspire to stop me eye racing so a lot of the time when i get into an official race a lot of my emotional investment is in having a decent race so i want to trudge around i don't want to wait all day get yelled at because I say I'm going to go eye racing and then spin off on lap one. So I, I generally keep it safe. I also have the attitude with racing. So if someone's wheel to wheel with me, I'm like, well, if we clash now, my whole night's ruined. Whereas if you do it more often, I guess you can go, well, I'll risk it. I'll go on the edge. So I need to move to a, a more aggressive uh, setup and maybe a, a more risk reward setup. But do you do you tend to have setups then that make you feel uncomfortable and on on the on the limit? Or do you ever pick like a, something you just go, right, tactically in this race i want to get i want to get round um and to ask a 17 part question i wonder as well when we listen to like driver comms in races and we hear drivers going this feels great feels beautiful <laughs> does, it, does that mean that it could be slow you know a car handles like a pig and you're like, yeah it's supposed to deal with it that that's that's how you be fast okay so to answer both of those um yeah. i I don't go for a particular kind of setup because I basically just take whatever this week's track setup <laughs> is Fair enough. Um, and just say, well, if if the person who made this setup can do those lap times, that's what it's capable of. So I'll just drive uh, better and I'll just They tell you they tell you what laps they did. So on Pure Driving yeah. School, which is the um the service I use, one of it's one of the two main setup um subscription services with iRacing. Um, not an advert run run by Max Benneke, who is the the driver with the the highest i rating they call him 10k benike but i think actually he's got 11 now but um anyway it, i they show you a video of that lap so you you can choose the pro race setup the qualifying setup you can look at the telemetry that they achieved when they did their best lap and you can also watch a lap on board in certain temperatures so you can see what the setup is capable of so i don't then go oh, i reckon i can make that better i'll tweak it i go fair enough if he's doing those times I need to just drive better to achieve those times. And then I'll go out and just practice in, until I can, hopefully. Um, and in real life, where you say people, drivers saying that a car balance is great or the car feels great, and does that mean it's actually slower than it could be? I think yeah. all it shows you is that their expectation level is a different range. If, if a normal person went out to drive that car, they would probably say, oh my God, it's awful. But the driver that we're talking about, if it's Formula One, for example, they're expecting a certain range of handling traits. And it just means that, they found the sweet spot within the range that you'd expect. 
Um, similar to when I'm at work and I'm commenting. So when I'm testing tires for work and I have to comment on the handling ability of a winter tire, for example, I don't say, oh, it's terrible. It's got nowhere near as much grip in the fast corners um, as, as it could have because you're talking about it within the realistic level for a right. winter tire. So you, you, know, you, you talk about it in context. And I think that's probably what the Formula One drivers are doing. I remember when we first started doing the Formula Renault 2.0 as a as a championship for our Missed Apex Championship, we had fixed setups. So we would choose the setup and and then everyone would just be stuck with it. And uh, we've moved away from that now. We have open setups. But when we had the fixed setup, everyone was kind of losing it. Do you remember we did the Silverstone National Circuit and everyone was just losing it around Brooklyn? And I'm like, Brad, this setup, like it's only fun for the very best guys. You know, can, can you give us something a bit more like corporate, you know, for the gentleman racer? Uh, and I remember you saying, right, I think I've done it. What I've done is I've, I've thought of all the ways to make it fast and done the opposite. And then eventually I was happy with it and I could drive it. Yeah. So that's something that, um, it's, it's quite a rare thing you have to do because obviously that's a quite specific situation. Yeah. Where you've got <laughs> um, a range of abilities racing in a mm. fixed setup series. But yeah, so we, we basically probably just dialed in some understeer and made it a slower car to drive. But ultimately, if everyone's got the same, it doesn't really matter. Although for the faster guys, it probably didn't feel as enjoyable because they yeah. could cope with a car which was a bit more pointy and that feels a bit more positive. But in, in the real world, in on corporate events, they do similar things. When I worked at mm. Palmer Sport, they have the Formula 3000 single seaters that people can drive. And they're very deliberately set up to understeer like crazy because people... Uh, you know, rookies, um, the general public, when they're coming to drive this these cars for experiences, they just find it much easier if the car isn't trying to bite them all the time. And understeer is just a little bit easier for people to cope with. That it just make, forces them to go a bit slower into the corners. But yeah. they still thought they were amazing. Everyone would get out of those cars <laughs> yeah. and say, "Oh, they handle brilliantly." But if you have a professional driver jump in, they would immediately say, "Well, there's nowhere near enough front downforce, and the <laughs> the car just wants to go straight on at every corner." So. Yeah, that's that's quite a specific situation, but it does show that the same car, the exact same vehicle, can handle totally differently with with some small setup adjustments. And uh, your road car understeers deliberately, isn't it? Most road cars are set to understeer. I understand that that's because for insurance purposes, it's safer to crash head on. So if you're going to have an accident, they want you to crash head on. Generally, yeah, I think yeah, that's car, how cars are designed. Most crash tests are front end crash tests. Yeah, most of the crumple zone is at the front. So yeah, you're right. They they want you to hit something head on. You know, airbags are designed to work from the front. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's generally the the preferred way that the road cars crash. But do you think that's the reason why rental carts are very understeery as well? Is that do you think that's the reason, or are they just inherently understeery? I think I don't know quite how deliberate that is with rental carts. I think they tend to have very, very hard tires, a quite low right. grip, and they tend to have very heavy rear ends because they've got quite big, heavy engines for the amount of power they produce, especially like a twin engine pro cart, for example. That's quite a lot of weight over the rear axle. There will definitely obviously be some setup involved in that as well, but um, you'd have to try quite hard to make a, a rental cart over, particularly oversteery. Um, but you're right, though. They do tend to have a, yeah. a predominantly understeery mm. balance, particularly in the wet. Ah, good. I really enjoyed this discussion. And like, I, I am going to tell my wife now that this is an hour and a half production so that I can have 40 minutes chatting to you and then the rest of the time implementing in the rig uh, what we've talked about. Uh, but if you are watching this in real time, it is currently the 13th of January 2021. Uh, if you are watching this in the real week we recorded it, then you can also watch Brad racing at DLNS 
on Saturday. Uh, what, what service do we... Is it YouTube? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to watch. You can watch the official feed, which is just on mm. Nürburgring's official YouTube channel. So if you just type for the uh, search for the channel Nürburgring, that will give you like the TV feed showing from the outside all the normal cameras and all the different classes, which is quite exciting to watch, particularly if, if we happen to be up the front. Um, or you can watch my own YouTube channel. Just search for my name, Bradley Philpott or Brad Philpott on YouTube, and you'll see me go live. And then you'll get all of our team radio, um, all of the anxious chatter between me and my teammates and my onboard virtual reality view. And then I'll be riding on board with my teammate once I get out of the car. Fantastic. Um, if you send me links, I will put them in the show notes for this episode as well. Uh, do all the normal things, like and subscribe, tell your friends that there's a cool new iRacing podcast that they might want to tune into. Follow Brad by searching for at uh, Bradley Philpot on Twitter. You can follow me at Spanners Ready. Uh, the Mist Apex Project is at Mist Apex F1 on Twitter, or you can go to MistApexPodcast.com. I'm off to jump into the sim to see if I can break correctly and all the way to the apex and maybe shake off some of my um, my corporate dad racing. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Mist Apex High Racing Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 